in a minute. Exodus 27, we'll review uh, where we've been the past couple weeks, lead us into where we're going today. We started studying the tabernacle and established at the outset that though the detail given regarding its pattern and construction may seem tedious, you read Exodus 25 through 40, it really kind of starts to slow down compared to the narrative up to that point. But when you, when you get just beneath the surface, what you see is a wonderful, beautiful, incredible picture of the person and work of Jesus Christ. And there are so many ways in which the tabernacle and its furniture and its service pictures Christ and what he would do and who he would be. Uh, many, many ways in which all of that is true, and, and we'll spend several weeks, I'm not quite sure exactly how long, highlighting many of those different ways. But if in nothing else, the tabernacle pictures Christ in its primary function and purpose. The reason given for the construction of the tabernacle is to provide a place for God to dwell with man. And when Jesus showed up in Matthew chapter 2, he was said to be God with us. In John chapter 1, he was the Word, made flesh and dwelt among us. You, you could put that in verb form that he tabernacled among us. So Jesus Christ is God dwelling with man. Then the purpose of the tabernacle is to provide a place for man to approach to God, a means whereby man can come into God's presence in Jesus Christ is the anti-type of that type. He is the, he is the image of the shadow. He is the true means whereby sinners can approach unto a holy God. And then last week we saw that what precedes the material in Exodus, in Exodus about the tabernacle, is the giving of the law. Now, the tabernacle pictures the person where Christ, the law, according to Galatians 3, is what brings us to Christ. And so, but before we can understand and properly respond to the truths of the gospel, we have to understand why Christ had to die. And it was for our sins. And what teaches us about our sin is the law God given, which defines sin and makes sin exceeding sinful and causes a man who truly understands and appreciates and agrees with God to search for a remedy outside of ourselves. And that points us straight to Jesus Christ. The reason many people don't get saved is they never get lost. But there were three different ways in which the tabernacle pictured the law bringing one to Christ. It was the structure of the book of Exodus. You have law, then tabernacle, law, then tabernacle. It was the perimeter of the tabernacle. It was surrounded by this uh, linen, this fine linen picturing righteousness, which forced you to go into the one entrance through the door. You couldn't get in any other way because of this barrier. And because we are not righteous, that's what causes us to approach the door, which is Jesus Christ. And then we saw it in the Ark of the Covenant and the mercy seat. The Ark contained the covenant. That is the law of God. It is where God's presence dwelt. It was where God intended to meet and commune with his people. But in order for man to approach to God, there had to be mercy. God could not deal with us according to our iniquities, according to our sins. Uh, the law teaches us that. But thank God that he is a God of mercy and grace and forgiveness. Now, starting today, we want to look at the different items of furniture within 
the tabernacle. There are many of these, and each in some way pictures the person and work of Christ, as well as various aspects of salvation and the Christian life. And let's just review. You enter in through the door, and now you're in one of the sections of the tabernacle. This is called the, don't everybody say it once, the outer court, okay? Anybody could come into this area of the tabernacle, the first place you enter, the first piece of furniture that you see, this is called the, don't everybody say it at once, the brazen altar. We'll talk about that today. You pass the brazen altar, you come to the laver or the laver. Should we take a poll on how it should be pronounced? Maybe it's a British-American thing. We're going with laver today because I'm from Alabama and that's what feels right. And then this, if, if you come to a veil here and you, the priests would enter into the holy place, this is actually called the tabernacle proper. There were more curtains and skins and this was a separate tent within this perimeter. So you got the outer court, brazen altar, labor. You've got the tabernacle proper divided into two sections. The holy place which contains the table of showbread and the candlestick. And then this little square is the golden altar or the incense altar. You go through another veil. The high priest would do this one time every year on the Day of Atonement. Enter into the Holy of Holies, the most holy place, and there's the Ark of the Covenant and the Mercy Seat and the very presence of God. So that's the order of the furniture as you would find it within the tabernacle. But it's interesting that when, when the pattern is given, when the blueprints are given for the construction of the tabernacle and the articles of furniture that would be inside of it, you don't find them in this order. You find them in a much different order, starting in Exodus 25 and going through Exodus chapter 30. But then when you get to the construction of the actual pieces, you find yet a different order. And, and we don't have time really this morning to go into the reasons for that or the lessons that we can draw from that. But just for the purpose of our study this morning, we're going we're gonna to follow the order as the items are laid out within the structure of the tabernacle. So I, I may have told you Exodus 25. If I did, what I meant to say was Exodus 27, because there we find the brazen altar or altar of brass. Exodus 27, verse number one. And thou shalt make an altar of shit of wood, five cubits long and five cubits broad. The altar shall be four square. The height thereof shall be three cubits. Thou shalt make the horns of it. Upon the four corners thereof, his horns shall be of the same. Thou shalt overlay it with brass. Thou shalt make his pans to receive his ashes and his shovels and his basins and his flesh hooks and his fire pans, all the vessels thereof. Thou shalt make of brass. Thou shalt make for it a grate of network of brass. And upon the net shalt thou make four brazen rings in the four corners thereof. And thou shalt put it under the compass of the altar beneath, that the net may be even in the midst of the altar. Thou shalt make staves for the altar, staves of shittim wood, and overlay them with brass. And the staves shall be put into the rings, and the staves shall be upon the two sides of the altar to bear it. Hollow with boards shalt thou make it as it was showed thee in the mount, so shall they make it. And make it they did. Exodus chapter 38. And verse number 1, read there, Exodus 38. The Bible says, And he made the altar of shittim wood. The altar of burnt offering of shittim wood. Five cubits was the length thereof. Five cubits the breadth thereof. It was four square and three cubits the height thereof. And he made the horns thereof on the four corners of it. The horns thereof were of the same. He overlaid it with brass, and he made all the vessels of the altar, the pots, the shovels, the basins, the flesh hooks, the fire pans, all the vessels thereof made he of brass. 
He made for the altar brazen net grade of network under the compass thereof beneath under the midst of it. He cast four rings for the four ends of the grade of brass to be places for the staves. He made the staves of shittim wood and overlaid them with brass. And he put the staves and the rings on the sides of the altar to bear it withal. He made the altar hollow with boards. Okay, so it's called the altar of burnt offering. The children of Israel would bring their sacrifices and their offerings, their peace offerings, their burnt offerings, their sin offerings. The offerings that are described there in the book of Exodus, they would be brought to the priest, to this altar, and it would be laid upon that altar. It would be burned upon that altar. And, and Leviticus goes into details of the different things that would happen with the offerings, but it all took place right there at the brazen altar or the altar of brass. And what I want to give you this morning is six ways in which this brazen altar pictures the person and the work of Jesus Christ. And first of all, come to Exodus 29 and verse 11. The first way that the altar pictures Jesus Christ is in its location. Pictures Jesus Christ in its location. Exodus 29 and verse number 11 says this. Exodus 29 and 11, uh, start at verse 10. Thou shalt cause a bullock to be brought before the tabernacle congregation. Aaron and his sons shall put their hands upon the head of the bullock, and thou shalt kill the bullock before the Lord by the door of the tabernacle of the congregation. Exodus 29 is referring to the consecration of the priests and then really the consecration of the tabernacle itself, but it, it gives an indication of the location of the brazen altar, and what it says is that the brazen altar is by the door. The first piece of furniture, the first item within the tabernacle that you approach as soon as you enter through the only means of entrance is this brazen altar. Um, the outer perimeter caused you, demanded that you come in through the door. Those linen curtains, again, typify the righteousness required to approach to God. And that door we saw in itself as a picture of Jesus Christ. He said in John 10, I am the door. He said in John 14, I am the way, the truth, the life. No man cometh to the Father but by me. But after you pass through the door, you've got to come to the brazen altar. Because we've got to be a little bit more specific than just believing in Jesus. You ever try to witness to somebody, are you going to heaven? What's going to happen when you die? Are your sins forgiven? Oh yeah, I believe in Jesus. And sometimes we're tempted to just accept that at face value. Oh great, this person must be saved. This person must be a Christian. They said the name Jesus. Do you know a Mormon could answer you and say, I believe in Jesus. Jehovah's Witness could answer you and say, I believe in Jesus. A Catholic could answer you and say, I believe in Jesus. Somebody who just grew up in church all their life could answer you without ever being born again, but say, I believe in Jesus. They might mean, I believe Jesus existed. They might mean, I believe Jesus was a historical figure. They might mean, I believe Jesus was the brother of Lucifer. <laughs> okay? The devils believe and tremble, James 2.19. So it's actually a little bit more than just believing in Jesus. The way to approach to God, it's only through Jesus Christ, but it is by means of his death, 
burial, and resurrection for our sins. And we're pointed to that fact by the location of the altar of brass because it's just inside of the door. There is something that Jesus did that allows a man to obtain the righteousness he needs to approach to God. There is something that Christ accomplished that enables men to be right with their creator. What is it specifically that a person must believe in order to have his sins forgiven? It's that Jesus died for our sins. It's that he made an offering, a sacrifice. He shed his blood. He, he, he offered himself without spot to God. How does the altar of brass picture that? You've got to come through the door, but as soon as you enter through the door, there's a, there's a place of sacrifice, a place where offerings were brought. And in order to proceed any farther in this tabernacle and approach unto God, you've got to come not just through the door, but by means of the sacrifice. Okay? Come to 1 Peter chapter 3. 1 Peter, hold, hold your place in Exodus because we've got to come back. 1 Peter chapter 3. In verse number 18, I believe that fact will be clearly demonstrated by this passage. 1 Peter 3. In verse number 18. 1 Peter 3 and verse 18, the Bible says, For Christ also hath once suffered for sins, the just for the unjust, that he might bring us to God being put to death in the flesh, there's his cross work, his crucifixion, but quickened by the Spirit, there's his resurrection, delivered for our offenses, raised for our justification, Romans 4, 5. But it is by means of this death and quickening, by means of this suffering, by means of this offering, what was the purpose, what was the, the goal, what was the end result, that he might bring us to God. If Jesus had only been born, he couldn't bring us to God. If Jesus had only been born and worked miracles, he couldn't have brought us to God. If Jesus had been born and worked miracles and healed people and preached truth, he could not have brought us to God. In order to bring us to God, he had to make an offering. He had to, he had to, he had to shed his blood. And that's pictured by this Brazen altar, believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and thou shalt be saved. But what does that really mean? Romans 1.16 says you've got to believe the gospel of Jesus Christ. That, that he died for our sins, was buried and rose again. That's the power of God to salvation. If thou shalt confess with thy mouth the Lord Jesus and believe in thine heart, God that raised him from the dead, thou shalt be saved. So it's only through Jesus but it's through what Jesus did. This, this brazen altar, it's a picture of the cross where the Lamb of God that takes away the sin of the world was laid on an altar and bled and died. Why? So that we could come to God. Not only in its location, but the brazen altar pictures Christ in its dimensions. Look there at Exodus 27. I think the first couple verses that specify the dimensions for the brazen. It was the largest piece of furniture 
within the tabernacle. Exodus 27 and verse 1. Said thou shalt make the thou shalt make an altar of shittim wood five cubits long, and five cubits broad. The altar shall be four square, and the height thereof shall be three cubits. So it was five by five by three. It was three cubits tall, five cubits wide, five cubits broad. Okay, so a cubit is this measurement right here. Different, different. Uh, standards given maybe 18 inches if that's the cubit then this would be seven and a half feet by seven and a half feet and about four and a half feet tall now we're not going to go into biblical numerology this morning and give you all the all the background or all the evidences but here here's what we believe five to be five to be a number that represents death Genesis chapter 5, you read the genealogy of the generations of Adam, and after each name given, there's a statement made, and he died. Because in Adam, all died. So five representing death, and three representing the Godhead, or the Trinity. Okay, so what the brazen altar pictures the cross. What took place at the cross, there was... A man in whom dwelt all the fullness of the Godhead bodily, and he died there. The cross is the place where God died. It's five cubits by five cubits representing death. It's three cubits representing the Godhead. Come with me to First John chapter hold Exodus. Come to First John chapter three. Let's see this. In the New Testament, how Jesus Christ is the antitype. 1 John chapter 3, in verse number 16. 1 John chapter 3, verse 16. Hereby perceive we the love of God, because he said hell, hell wasn't real. <laughs> That's a lot of people. That's that's the idea that people today have about the love of God. The love of God means he's a pushover, he's a pansy, he's a softy, he's tolerant, he doesn't care. I can sin, get away with it, no judgment, no hell. That's not what the love of God means. Hereby perceive we the love of God because he laid down his life for us. And we ought to lay down our lives for the brethren. So the demonstration, the proof, the evidence of God's love is. Jesus died on a cross, but look at 1 John 3, 16. Hereby perceive the love of God because he laid down his life. Who laid down his life? God laid down his life. This verse is a great proof for the deity of Jesus Christ. When Jesus died on the cross, that was God dying for you and for me. The modern versions ruin that reference. To the deity of Jesus Christ. The King James Bible makes it clear that the one who died on the cross and the one who loved us enough to do it was in fact God. Look at Revelation chapter 1. There's a passage I love to show uh, the Jehovah's Witnesses when I'm speaking with them. And I, I ask this question, Romans 1, 17. When I saw him, I fell at his feet as dead. And he laid his right hand upon me, saying to me, Fear not, I am the first and the last. Okay, so the speaker... 
in Revelation 1, identifies himself as the first and the last. Cross-reference that with Isaiah 44, 6 and other places. And it's Jehovah who is the first and last. I am the first, I am the last. Beside me there is no God. That's Isaiah 44, 6. Next, next statement. The person who said I'm the first and the last then said, I am he that liveth and was dead. And behold, I am alive forevermore. So I'm speaking to Jehovah's Witness. I'll take them back in Revelation 1. I'll start all the way in verse number 11. And every verse will identify the speaker. Verse 11, who is it? It's Jehovah. Verse 12, who is it? It's Jehovah. Verse 13, 14, 15, 16, 17. It's Jehovah. Nobody argues. And then you get to verse 18. I am he that liveth and was dead. And I ask the question, when did Jehovah die? And that presents a problem to somebody who doesn't believe that Jesus Christ is Jehovah. And they say, well, this is a different speaker. But it's not. The one who lived and died is the first and the last. The one who died on the cross was God. It was three cubits high. That's the Godhead. It was five cubits on each side. The Godhead, the one in whom dwelt the fullness of Godhead, died for us. Praise the Lord. We'll expand on that in the next point. So the, the brazen altar it pictures Christ in its location, pictures Christ in its dimensions, pictures Christ in its materials, or I suppose you could say its composition. Pictures Christ in its materials or composition. Exodus 27 again, verse number two. Look what, or verse number one, look, look what he made it out of, and thou shalt make an altar. Of Shittim wood, verse number two, end of the verse, thou shalt overlay it with brass. Exodus 38 says the same thing. Verse number two says, they overlaid it with brass. Verse number one says, he made an altar burnt offering of Shittim wood. So when you say the materials, we've got two different materials that we're talking about. When you would look at the altar, what you would see is brass. Brass in the Bible is is indicative or representative of judgment. Just, just one evidence of that in Numbers chapter 21. Remember the serpent on the pole, the children of Israel complained. They murmured against the Lord and, and his anger was kindled. He sent fiery serpents among them that bit the people. And the people are dying and Moses goes to God. What are we going to do? And he said, put up a serpent of brass. And when you look on the serpent then you will live. This, this was God's judgment on the people. But that serpent brass in and of itself pictures Jesus Christ who took the judgment of God for our sin. If we look to him, then we can live. So this altar of brass indicates God's judgment. The shittim wood out of which the altar was made it, it represents the humanity of Jesus Christ. Let me show you that. Come to Isaiah 53. It's a very durable type of wood. It is said to be imperishable. It was used throughout the tabernacle, not only for the brazen altar, also for other uh, items of furniture within. The boards that were used, they were made of shittim wood. And again, it's a type of humanity of Jesus Christ. How is that? Isaiah 53 and verse number 2 says this, For he shall grow up before him as a tender plant and as a root out of 
a dry ground. What is this shittim wood? It's this tree is something that comes up out of the ground and grows, and then it's it's cut off. Look at Isaiah chapter number eleven. Jesus Christ is compared to a root out of a dry ground. Isaiah chapter eleven and verse number one, and there shall come forth a rod out of the stem of Jesse, and a branch shall grow out of his roots. Spirit of the Lord shall rest upon him. Verse number two, uh, it goes on to indicate we're talking about Jesus Christ. What is he called? The rod out of the stem of Jesse. What is he called? The branch. The human aspect of Jesus Christ is indicated by the shittim wood out of which the brazen altar was constructed. So we got two materials. We got brass representing God's judgment. We've got the wood representing the humanity of Jesus Christ. The brass pictures what made the cross necessary. The brass pictures what made the cross necessary and the wood pictures what made the cross possible. Okay? So God's judgment is what required that a sacrifice be made for sin. Sin must be punished. Sin must be judged. Why? God is holy. He's righteous. He he has to judge sin. He can't just forgive us or he would be unjust. He's merciful and He wants to forgive us. He's loving and He still wants us to have a relationship with Him and spend eternity with Him. But sin had to be dealt with. Sin had to be punished. That's the brass. The wood, that's the humanity of Jesus Christ. Why did God become a man? We, we said in 1 John 3, God died. We said in Revelation chapter 1, Jehovah died. But God is a spirit. He can't die. He's immortal. He's invisible. He had to be robed with flesh for the purpose of suffering the death of the cross. Let me show you that. Come to 1 John chapter 3. Hold Exodus. Come to 1 John chapter 3 and we got to hurry. 1 John chapter 3. Is this making any sense at all? The brass indicates what made the cross necessary. The wood indicates what made the cross possible. 1 John chapter 3 and verse number 5. And ye know that he was manifested to take away our sins, and in him was no sin. When we say manifested, it has a double meaning. Yes, he was revealed. Yes, he was shown. But the word was made flesh. God was manifest in the flesh. When we're talking about his manifestation, we're, we're not just saying that he came, he appeared, he was here. We're talking about his incarnation. The fact that he became a Man, he was manifest. Why was he manifest? To take away our sins. How could he take away our sins? He had to die. Look at Hebrews chapter 2. Hebrews chapter 2 in verse number 9. Hebrews 2 and verse 9 says, But we see Jesus, who is made a little lower than the angels. That's a reference to Psalm 2. Or I'm sorry, Psalm number 8, speaking of man being a little lower than the angels. Jesus was made a little lower than the angels. Jesus was made a man for the suffering of death. 
God had to become a man so that God could die for our sins. Made a little lower than the angels for the suffering of death, crowned with glory and honor, that he by the grace of God should taste death for every man. Verse 14, for as much then as children are partakers of flesh and blood, he also himself likewise took part of the same, that, we're about to give you the reason, we're about to give you the purpose statement, that through death he might destroy him that had the power of death, that is the devil. Philippians 2 says the very same thing, talking about how he made himself of no reputation, took upon him the form of a servant, was made the likeness of men, and became obedient unto death, even the death of the cross. You understand the reason God had to become a man is so that God could die. And that's that's pictured by this wood out of which the altar was constructed. Now go to Leviticus chapter 9. Leviticus chapter 9, there's a fourth way in which the brazen altar pictures Jesus Christ and his, his person and his work, and that's the fire that was burning upon that altar. Leviticus chapter 9. Leviticus 9 and verse number 1, it came to pass on the eighth day, Moses called Aaron and his sons the elders of Israel. He said unto Aaron, take the young calf for a sin offering, a ram for a burnt offering without blemish, and offer them before the Lord. So the priestly ministry is beginning here in Leviticus 9. We have the consecration in chapter 8, and, and here are the first offerings being brought into the tabernacle and offered upon that brazen altar. Look at verse number 23. And Moses and Aaron went into the tabernacle of the congregation and came out and blessed the people. And the glory of the Lord appeared on all the people. And there came a fire out from before the Lord and consumed upon the altar the burnt offering and the fat, which when all the people saw, they shouted and fell on their faces. So, so here's what happened. They prepared the tabernacle, they built the furniture, they brought the offerings, they killed the offerings, but they didn't light the fire. God sent the fire on that offering the first day that the priests began their ministry. Look at Leviticus chapter 6, just a couple chapters back, Leviticus 6. And verse number 12, And the fire upon the altar shall be burning in it. It shall not be put out. And the priest shall burn wood on it every morning and lay the burnt offering in order upon it. He shall burn thereon the fat of peace offerings. The fire shall ever be burning upon the altar. It shall never go out. So they didn't bring the gasoline and the matches to get the fire started. God! sent fire down upon that altar, and then that fire was to never go out. Okay, How does this picture Jesus Christ? Well, man couldn't affect the death of Jesus Christ. It, it, it's technically incorrect to say that the Romans crucified him. It's, it's technically incorrect to say that he was murdered by the Jews. In John 10, Jesus said, I lay down my life that I might take it again. 
The, the, the death of God was a sacrificial death. Jesus offered himself. In Isaiah 53, the Bible says, All we like sheep have gone astray. We've turned everyone his own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. Okay, so, so God answered by fire. God put our sins on Jesus Christ. Isaiah 53.10, it pleased the Lord to bruise him. God sent down his judgment on Christ when he was made an offering for sin. But the Bible says in Hebrews 7, we're not going to take the time to turn to it, that he ever liveth to make intercession for us. That he is able to save them to the uttermost that come to God by him. That, 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 that fire, that judgment of God that was sent on Christ for our sins. It's never gone out. It is ever effectual. There was, there was never another fire that needed to be sent by God. There was never another offering that needed to be made by Jesus Christ. That's referenced in the latter part of Hebrews 7. Again, in Hebrews chapter 10, these priests would bring offering after offering, but Jesus Christ made one sacrifice for sins forever. God sent the fire one time, and it never went out. Jesus Christ offered himself one time, and it was for all sin, for all men, for all time. His propitiation for our sins, not for ours only, also for the sins of the whole world. Quickly, Exodus 27 and Exodus 38 spoke of the horns of the altar. And, and it was really for the purpose of kind of tying the sacrifices down. You find another place, but on each corner, there are these horns. When you run the references to horns throughout the Bible, we don't have time to do it this morning, but for instance, Deuteronomy 33, Numbers 23, Habakkuk chapter 3, horns are indicative of power. Horns, uh, there, there are passages where uh, the Bible speaks of the strength of the unicorn and the, the horn that he has. But it it's an emblem of strength. It's an emblem of power. What does the Bible say in Romans chapter 116? I'm not ashamed of the gospel of Christ, for it is the power of God unto salvation. To everyone that believes, the Jew first saw the Greek. 1 Corinthians 118, the preaching cross them that perish foolishness, but on us, us which are saved, it is the power of God. These four horns on the four corners of the altar. North, east, west, and south. We've got news that is very powerful. We've got news that, that, that will avail to the saving of a man's soul. Connected to the place where offerings were brought. Connected to what typifies the cross of Jesus Christ. One more thing about the altar that pictures Christ. Exodus 27, look at verse 7. Exodus 27, verse 7. There were, so, so underneath the altar, there's this grate that would catch the ashes, and they would carry out the ashes and, and remove them to another place. But then down, uh, I guess around the grate, on every side, on every corner of the altar, there are not only horns, but there are these rings. 
And the reason that there were these rings is because, remember, the tabernacle was a temporary structure that was moved from place to place. And so the Levites had the job of setting up the tabernacle, but then taking down the tabernacle and moving it somewhere else. All right? And these articles of furniture are consecrated to God, and they're holy. And so what they had was they had a stave. Like a long pole, a long stick, a long staff. It was made of shit. It was overlaid with brass. And they would take the stick. They had two of them. And they would pass it through the rings on one side. And then they would pass it through the rings on the other side. And I guess you'd get four Levites. And they would take the staves. And they would pick up the altar. And they would carry it to the next spot. God leading the children of Israel by a pillar of cloud or a pillar of fire. And so and so the staves would be put in those rings, the altar would be picked up, and it would be carried to the next place. Exodus 27, verse 7, said it shall have, that's Exodus 28, verse 7. Exodus 27, 7, the staves shall be put into the rings, and the staves shall be upon the two sides of the altar to bear it. This altar had to be carried. It had to be Born. Exodus 38, verse 7 said the same thing. Turn with me one more place. Acts chapter 9. Acts chapter 9. The altar pictures the person and work of Jesus Christ, specifically his cross work, his being made an offering for our sins, his being laid upon the cross, and suffering and bleeding and dying. He, he became a man so that he could do that. And all of this is pictured by the brazen altar, but that altar, it had to be carried. It had to be born. Acts chapter 9, this is the conversion of Paul the Apostle, and then the commission of Paul the Apostle. In Acts chapter 9, verse 15, the Lord said to him, Go thy way, for he, Paul, is a chosen vessel unto me to bear my name before the Gentiles and kings and the children of Israel. For I will show him how great things he must suffer for my name's sake. So, Paul had to bear the message of the gospel. He was called to go and proclaim and preach good news. And and we have been so commissioned. Mark 16, 15. Go ye in all the world and preach the gospel to every creature. So, we don't have righteousness. We came through the door. We found Jesus Christ to be the offering for our sin that was needed so that we could approach it to God and our duty and our calling and our commission is to take the staves and and carry that message to a lost and dying world. Why did the altar have rings? Why did the altar have staves? Because this message, this good news, this powerful good news it's got to be carried to people so that they can hear about Jesus Christ and how they can be saved. And so that, that's our job. That's our duty. How are you doing with that? You basically have been called to be a Levite, to carry the ark. I'm sorry, not the ark. The, the altar of burnt offering. The brazen altar. Pictures Christ in many ways. And that, those are just six. But it's incredible how God laid this thing out. I'm thankful this morning that I have a Savior. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your word and its truth. 
And uh, God, uh, just just how good you've been to us, the salvation that you provided for us. Help us, Lord, to have a burden to testify of the one who is the mediator between God and man and gave his life a ransom for all. Bless the outreach this afternoon and the service to follow just now. We love you in Jesus' name. Amen.